Uh, This term, we've begun a series in the book of Exodus. So we're going to turn to that now. We've printed the reading on the sheet. Um, Or if you're following along in your own Bible, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 2. Children, what you need to know so far is that God's people, the Israelites, are in slavery. And Pharaoh has got worried because God's people are growing and growing and growing. And so he's come up with various plans to, well, to get rid of them. He put them into slavery to start with. Uh, He tried to kill all the boys when they were born, and both those plans failed. So his new plan has been to throw all the baby boys into the River Nile when they're born. Okay, So that's what's uh, been happening just before our story starts. Okay, So let's hear then uh, what happens next. Exodus 2, let's hear what the Spirit says this morning. Now... A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and with pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with them, uh, to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Our second little reading this morning uh, comes from Stephen's speech in Acts when Stephen is trying to defend himself and particularly explain that the way that he, his people, the Jewish people, had treated Jesus was just like the way they treated Moses. So just from Acts 7, verses 22 to 29, this is Stephen explaining, retelling the story of Moses. So, verse 22, Moses was instructing all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might know what you, our great God, is like. Uh, we might know what to believe, and uh, we might know how to live. And so we pray this morning you'd pour your spirit on us, uh, that we might understand the wonderful things you have for us in your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what is the sound of Exodus 2? As we read that story, uh, what, it, what, what would you hear? Two things. You might give two different answers. Uh, if you were listening to the Israelites, or the Hebrews, as they're sometimes called in this passage, uh, what you would hear is screaming. If you look at the end of the passage, uh, Exodus uh, 2, uh, verse 23, during those many days, so during all the time this story about Moses was going on, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out, for help. Uh, we know from elsewhere that, that the, Egypt, the, sorry, the Israelites were in slavery for 400 years. Can you imagine that? That these are God's people. These are the people that God had promised through this covenant that's mentioned, that he would be their God, that he'd take them to a promised land, uh, that he would bless them, that through them he'd bless all the world, in fact. And for 400 years, they're in slavery. Do you think, cast your mind back 400 years. We're, in England, that's, what's that? that's Charles I on the throne. Okay. 400 years of silence from heaven. And that's a contrast. If you, if you, if you ask the question, what does Exodus 2 sound like? On earth, it's screaming, crying out. Lord, why have you left us? Where are you? Where are these promises? We're being beaten. We're dying. Pharaoh is slaughtering our children. For more years than we can remember, we've been away from our homeland. Screaming on earth, and yet in heaven, silence. Nothing. No prophets, no miracles, and nothing back from God. Can, can you get yourself in, into that mindset? Uh, what it must be like... To have to keep trusting God's promises, promises 
that, that have seen no response, no progress in 400 years. In fact, promises that seem to be going downhill fast. And as you scream out under the oppressive lashes of the Egyptians' whips, silence. Heaven seems to be ice shut. The silence of heaven in response to the screams of God's people. It's not actually that different, is it, from our situation today? God willing, none of us are in physical slavery, but we suffer. And if you haven't suffered much yet, it will come to you just because you're too young. We suffer and we cry out for relief. Why, Lord? Why is this happening? When will it end? And very often it seems that what we get back is silence. We're still ill, having prayed for months and years for healing. Friends and family die despite the fact we've wept and pleaded before God that he'd rescue them. And we fall back into the same patterns of sin, despite having confessed it and asked for God's help. It seems, well, it can seem at times that nothing much is happening. No miracles, no prophets walking around today, are there? Heaven at times can seem silent, even as we scream out for help. Perhaps you're not a Christian, you're exploring the Christian faith. And that is one of your questions. Well, where is God? You Christians keep telling me he's good, that he's loving, that he's there. Where is he? The world is screaming out for help. And perhaps now more than ever, at least in recent history, it seems that he is silent in the face of huge suffering. Well, Exodus 2 is, is here this morning. His story is here to give us hope and to, well, to make us uh, to make us listen to two things, I think, two messages, uh, particularly from the Lord Jesus through it. Uh, in many ways, Exodus 2, it, it works a bit like an origin story. Uh, comic books have got big again recently, haven't they, with Marvel and DC and all these kind of films. And origin stories, you know, telling you where the superhero came from. Uh, they're all the rage. This is the origin story for Moses. And it's painting Moses as a saviour. That's, that's one thing we really need to get clear. Moses is, from a human level, going to be the saviour. In fact, in the New Testament, he's called the redeemer of God's people. Normally that word's reserved more or less just for Jesus. But Moses is, is the redeemer, the saviour. And we get three clues in the passage that he is this saviour figure. I want to deal with them pretty quickly. Uh, the first is his ancestry. Okay, his ancestry, his family. So verse 1. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, the Levites are a tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are the priestly tribe, uh, particularly as they'll become a bit later in Exodus. But the priests were all about bringing people before God, representing the rest of the people before God. In that sense, they're little, well, they're little saviors. Jesus himself is described as our great priest, our great high priest in the New Testament, because he brings us before God. We can't get in, God is too holy, but priests, well, priests allow us to come into God's presence. So there's the first little small clue. Okay, a little sort of Easter egg hidden. Okay, Moses, maybe he's going to be someone who can bring us, bring the people to God. So his ancestry. Secondly, his ark. Have you ever fallen for that kind of trick question in Sunday school uh, where someone says, well, how many of each animal did Moses take on his ark? And you say, oh, two of each animal. And they say, oh, no, it wasn't Moses who had an ark. It was Noah. Well, actually, it was both. 
Uh, Pharaoh is trying to kill all the children and have them thrown into the Nile. So what does Moses' mother do? Well, for three months, she managed to hide him because, of course, babies for the first three months are so quiet. And, you know. But after that, they get a bit noisy. So what does she do? Well, verse three, she makes what's described here as a basket of bulrushes and then puts, well, children, what she puts on it is kind of tar, a bit like on the roads. Okay, so this isn't some floaty little basket. You know, this is, she has made a proper little boat. And actually, the the word used for basket, I've no idea why it's translated basket, because it is the word for the ark, the same ark that that Noah built. In fact, the only other place in the Bible it's used is in that story of Noah and his ark. It's just not a basket. It is a little ark. You remember, maybe children, the story of Noah, that the floods came and it looked like the whole world was going to be wiped out. But God saved Noah and his family. And Noah became, well, the founder, the savior of the whole human race. It was a new start. And Noah was the fountain of it. So again, here is Moses again going into the waters, this time of the Nile rather than the flooded whole world. But it's a little picture of the same thing. And like Noah, he's in an ark. Again, a little clue, a little hint, a little Easter egg that he is going to be the saviour. And then thirdly are his actions, Moses' actions. Uh, By the time he grows up in the second half of Exodus 2, three times he saves people. Uh, The first is verse 11 and 12. He goes out and having grown up in Pharaoh's household, he, he knows he's an Israelite. So he goes out to see how his Israelite brothers are being treated. And verse 11, he sees an Egyptian, presumably a taskmaster, but maybe just a, 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 a sort of another Egyptian, beating one of the Hebrews, one of the Israelites. And the, the beating word is severe. It's not a kind of little slap in a bar fight. This, this guy is beating the Hebrew to death. What does Moses do? Well, verse 12, he strikes down the Egyptian. He kills him. Now, sometimes Moses is portrayed here as a kind of angry young hothead. Okay, particularly on those, you get those sort of posters or encouraging thoughts or whatever, where, where uh, you read, you know, isn't God gracious? Uh, he used Moses, who was a murderer, David, who was an adulterer, and, and so, so on through the Bible. Well, David was an adulterer, but I don't think Moses is a murderer. Okay, this is not him as some angry young hothead getting in a fight and killing someone. First of all, he's 40, okay, so he's not some teenage punk. Um, I'd be pleased to know if 40 was a young age, but I think it's, it's probably pushing it. Uh, Moses is a 40-year-old. He's been trained in Pharaoh's household. Uh, and the word used for striking the Egyptian is exactly the same word that is going to be used time and again in Exodus for, for God striking Egypt because they won't let his people go. God strikes the Nile and turns it to blood. He strikes the crops with hail, ultimately strikes the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. It is a justice word, in other words. And that's certainly how Stephen takes it in Acts. That's why we had that second reading. Uh, do you see in verse 24 of the Acts 7 reading, if you've got the service sheet, seeing one of them being wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him. It's not, it's not some rage killing, This is Moses protecting his brothers and bringing justice. So, his actions. First of all, he rescues the uh, Hebrew from the hands of the Egyptian. Next, he intervenes in a fight between two Hebrews. He comes as judge, if you like. Another role he'll take on later uh, in Exodus. 
uh, and saves in verse uh, 13, the one being beaten up, uh, albeit that he's not received very well. And then in verse 16 and 17, we read about him rescuing these Midianite women. He has to flee into the desert because he realizes the story of him killing the Egyptian has got out. And so he flees into the desert, into the wilderness, just as Israel will do. And these Midianite, seven Midianite women are watering their father's, uh, or wanting to water their father's sheep. But some shepherds come along, wait for the women to draw the water, and then try and steal it for themselves. And, well, what do we read? Uh, Back in Exodus, verse 17, the shepherds came, drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. Couldn't be more explicit. Moses is acting as a saviour to these seven women. Exodus 2 is showing us that Moses is a saviour figure, the one through whom God is going to rescue. That is God's pattern. Whatever the chaos in the world, however alarming the screams of his people, the way he works is through sending one man into the midst of it, one man into the heat of battle, and through him, and through raising him up, bring salvation to others. Moses, in other words is a little picture of Jesus. He is pointing to Christ. It's not ultimately Moses we need to hear from this morning, but Jesus. But but Moses paints in some of the background that helps us understand Jesus' work better. And there's all sorts of things we could talk about. Just just think of one of them. What happens to Moses a baby? Well, this evil Gentile king tries to kill him, slaughter him. Exactly the same with Jesus, isn't it? When Jesus is born, children, do you remember what, what happened? What did King Herod try and do? Yeah? Exactly, slaughter him. He killed all the baby boys, didn't he? Just as Pharaoh tried. There are all sorts of parallels between the two. Uh, and that's why the, learning about the Moses the Saviour is another way of learning ultimately about Jesus the Saviour. And the two things we need to hear from Jesus the Saviour this morning uh, are this. First... What does Jesus say to us this morning? What does he say to you this morning? If you're suffering, if you're screaming, if you're crying out, where are you? Why is life so hard? The first thing Jesus says is this, I've been there. That's what he's saying to you this morning. I've been there. Moses' life is one of suffering, isn't it? Some of it comes on him, as we've said already, before he can make any choices. People try to kill him when he's born. But more significantly for us, In the second half, as he grows up, he chooses to enter into his people's suffering. He identifies with them. Uh, He's grown up in the palace. These 40 years, we're told, and it's made clear by Stephen's speech, he had all the resources. Imagine growing up in Pharaoh's palace. This this is an absolute ruler. You think of some dictatorships around the world. And what it would be like to grow up inside the dictator's palace, knowing that outside is danger. But but actually, if you're on the bad guy's side, well, you've got all the wealth, all the riches, all the security. That's what was available for Moses. He's grown up in Saddam Hussein's palace, Kim Jong-il's palace. Outside, screaming and slaughter, but safety and riches for him. But he chooses to give it up. He chooses to go and see how his Israelite brothers are doing and to rescue them, avenge them, to stand with them. Uh, Hebrews 11, I didn't put it on the the sheets because there wasn't space, but Hebrews 11 is the other New Testament passage that, that kind of comments on this story in Exodus. And in Hebrews 11, we read this. 
by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I'm not going to stand with the Egyptians. I'm going to come and identify with those who are suffering. Leave the glory and enter into the scream. And again, do you see how he's picturing Christ for us? Laying out that background. Jesus leaves, not just an earthly palace, but he leaves the glory of heaven. He comes down in order to rescue. He doesn't need to, but he chooses to. And we're not even naturally his people, are we? Jesus is God. He is not a man. He's not eternally been man. But he chooses to become one of us. So great is his love. So much is he willing and so much does he desire to identify with us. Uh, he leaves that there's the silent heaven, as it were, and comes and enters the screaming world in order that he might be a saviour to us. And he does so knowing that he'll even be mistreated by his own people. Isn't it interesting that, that when Moses rescues um, his fellow Israelites, they don't want to know about it. Do you notice that? Uh, verse 14, when he rescues the guy getting beaten up, what is said to him? Well, who made you a prince and judge over us? What do you think you're doing? Trying to rule us and save us, judge us? Who put you in charge, Moses? We don't want you. Again, it's a picture of what's going to happen when he, when he leads the Israelites out into the, uh, through the Exodus. Uh, various times they'll grumble against him. Who made you in charge, they'll say to him. Jesus knew that we'd reject him, but still came. Still came to identify with us in our suffering. Came across an amazing story this week uh, of a guy called Colonel Robert Shaw. Uh, he fought in the American Civil War. Uh, he was a colonel in the 54th Massachusetts uh, Infantry Regiment. And what was amazing about that regiment was that it was the only regiment in the Civil War that was made up, or first at least, that was made up entirely uh, of, of uh, those who had been slaves and entirely of black men. But Robert Shaw was a white man from a privileged background. Many other people said, well, we can't let people from Afro-Caribbean type backgrounds into our army. But Shaw said differently. And when eventually they were allowed in, when they got their paychecks, they were far less than the white troops were given. And so Shaw encouraged his men to rip up the paychecks until they were treated equally and received the same money. And as an act of solidarity, he did the same. I'm not having you treated differently. We are one, one family, one brotherhood, one human race. He identified with those who were being mistreated when eventually he lost his life in battle. As was customary, the enemy side uh, would bury those uh, they defeated. Shaw lost his life alongside his troops. And again, in the horrendous conditions of the day, uh, the southern soldiers just pushed all the ordinary soldiers, uh, all these Afro-Caribbean men, into a common grave. And as an act, they thought, uh, of insult, insult, they pushed Robert Shaw in too, to this common grave, whereas they'd bury other officers with full military honours. Afterwards, when the North eventually won the war, the offer was made to pull out his body and bury it with full military honours. And his parents said, no. Don't do that. He would want to lie with his men. He wants to identify with those who've been so mistreated. Incredible story. 
That's what God's Son does for us. That's what God's Son says to us. He comes down and identifies with us in our suffering. He says, no, he is my man. She is my sister. That is my daughter, my brother, my son. And therefore, he can look us in the eye as he enters into suffering and say, I've been there. I've been there. And that's what he says to you uh, this morning. Whatever you've experienced, Jesus has experienced it too. You may be going through horrendous pain, physical pain. Well, Christ has been there, the agony of crucifixion. You may be suffering betrayal and abandonment. Jesus has been there as even his closest friends leave him and flee when danger comes. You may be suffering loss and bereavement. Jesus has been there weeping at the graveside of Lazarus. You may be experiencing loneliness. Jesus has been there abandoned by everybody. You may be going through trials or temptations. Jesus has been there, the full force of the devil coming at him in order to make him stumble into sin. He can say to you, I've been there. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, I've been there. Not just your experiences, but your emotions. Jesus lived life in in every key. Uh, The Psalms are often said they're, they're a window into the human soul, but they're a window into the soul of Christ. If you read the Psalms, what you're getting in some ways is the kind of the inside track of the Gospels. The Gospels tell us what's going on on the outside, and occasionally we get glimpses into uh, and descriptions of Jesus' emotions. But, but the Psalms are first and foremost on his lips, and so they tell us what he's thinking, what he's praying, what he's crying out. Psalm 6, for example, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Those are words of your God who came down. They're words you can identify with too. But he can say, I've been there. Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. You can feel the anguish. I can't eat. I I weep so much that my tears, they're all that sustain me. Jesus says, I've been there. Ultimately, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This feeling of being far from God. He's been there. If there are screams from earth and silence, seeming silence from heaven, God's own son has come down to become part of the screaming earth. He's been there. He's on our side. He knows what it's like. So if that is you at the moment, if you are screaming, if you are wondering what on earth is going on, why is heaven silent? Why is nothing changing? When is rescue coming? Then Exodus 2 doesn't give you easy answers. It doesn't tell you why God left his people in slavery for 400 years. It doesn't tell you why he's left you ill, why he's left you single, why he's left you depressed, why he's left you anxious, why he's left you childless, why he's left you unemployed, why he's left you poor, why he's left you lonely. But it does tell you that Jesus can say, I've been there. And it tells you, therefore, that he does love you. And that we'll have to leave it in his hands. In fact, Jesus says more than just, I've been there. And he can say to us, not just I know what you're going through. But he can also say, I've done it. That's what I want to finish with this morning. I've done it. Moses' life is not just one of random suffering. That there's a pattern to it. 
You might have picked this up already, trying to sort of hint it as we go through. There's a pattern to Moses' suffering. And the pattern is the pattern that the Israelites will go through with the Exodus. And we see this a number of ways. He's saved, first of all, from the waters where he's going to die. The waters are going to kill him. Okay, Pharaoh is going to push him into the waters and he'll drown. Well, that's what's going to happen to the Israelites. Okay, if you know the story, you have to sort of, it's like a trailer. Uh, but a few chapters later, the Israelites are going to be pushed into the Red Sea by Pharaoh. And it's going to look like they're going to die, drown in the Red Sea. But of course, God rescues them, just as he did Moses. In fact, Moses' name means drawn out. Uh, when Pharaoh's daughter names him, uh, up in verse 10, she calls him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Moses' very name, it means he was drawn out, drawn out of the water. But it's a pun, because not only has he been drawn out, he also will be the one through whom God draws out, takes out the Israelites. His very name means he's a saviour, just like Jesus is. In fact, Jesus, he saves. Moses flees into the wilderness, into the desert, because Pharaoh is trying to kill him. Well, that's what's going to happen to the Israelites as well. They'll be driven out into the desert with Pharaoh hard on their heels, trying to kill them. Exodus 1 and 2 are letting us know what's going to happen. Yes, the suffering, but in the midst of it, well, God saves this little saviour. Exodus 1 began with a description of what we call the sons of Israel. In ESV, it's often translated the people of Israel to try and be more kind of gender inclusive. Sons of Israel, though, is what it literally says. And the sons include men and women. Okay, there's 70 of them. And the sons of Israel grew in number. It wasn't just the men growing, was it? Okay, it's pretty basic biology. It's both, you need both sexes to be growing. Sons of Israel in chapter one. But the focus in chapter two is down onto one son. Because it's through this one son who goes through what the rest of the sons are going through. Through this one son, God will rescue Moses' life, saved from the waters, driven into the desert, where we'll see, in fact, next, next week in chapter 3, he meets God at Mount Sinai in, in a burning bush. It's exactly what the Israelites will go through, drawn out into the desert, driven out into the desert, Pharaoh trying to kill them. Uh, through the waters, they'll meet God at Mount Sinai in a burning, not just a burning bush, but a whole burning mountain this time. You see two aspects of Moses, essentially, in chapter 2. He both is the people of God being rescued... But he's also the one through whom God rescues. He's the rescued and the rescuer, the saviour and the saved. It is through him that God sees, strikes injustice, saves the daughters. See how he's a picture of Christ again? Christ is both the rescuer and the rescued. We used to think of him as a saviour, but he's also the saved. He had to cry out to his father God for rescue. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he said to his father. He had to go through everything that we deserve to go through in order to rescue us. He went there first, then we follow. He lived a life of suffering. He was persecuted. He was condemned, not for his sin, but ultimately for ours. He was put on the cross. He died. God's wrath was poured upon him. He was buried. in order that he might rise again and open those gates of paradise. And that's what he says to you this morning. I've done it. Everything that would stop you entering paradise, everything that would, would mean that your screams would continue forever, I've dealt with. Your screaming won't go on forever. Heaven won't be silent forever because God has rescued me from the grave, rescued me from death, rescued me from Satan, rescued me from the curse of sin. 
And because I was bearing your sin, well, he will rescue you too. Right at the end of our passage, verse 24. God heard the groaning, the cries of the Israelites. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This covenant is this promise that God made back in Genesis. I will be your God. I will rescue you. I will bring you to the promised land. When it says God remembered, it's not that he forgot. You know, he sort of suddenly realized. The other day I realized it was someone's birthday, uh, but I only realized about 10 o'clock at night, sent a quick text. You know, I remembered and then acted on it. But the reason I remembered is because I'd forgotten until 10 o'clock at night. God, God's not like that. When it says God remembered, it means he, he decided to act upon again. We don't know why he waited 400 years. I don't know why he's waiting that long before Christ returns. I don't know why he's waiting in your life to relieve the particular suffering you're, go, you're going through. But I do know, and this is what he says to you this morning, I do know that his own son has walked through it first and that he has conquered everything that would stand against you. He has done it, so he will do it for you. And so at times, as you do scream and cry out, at times, but all you can do is say, Lord, remember you have rescued your son, and Jesus, who inaugurated, brought in the new covenant. See how I wish we were doing the Lord's Supper this morning, as we say week by week normally. This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says, as he holds a cup. You cry out, you say, Lord, remember your son. I have nothing to plead before you. I am guilty. I am weak in faith. I have fallen. But remember your son. May he give me strength as he has walked through what I walked through. And may you look on him, not me. And therefore fill me with faith that you will bring me to the promised land. Heaven may seem silent as you scream at times. But it's not. The silence, it's not a lack of love. It's not a lack of care. It's not a lack of compassion. There's mystery, sure. But God has come down and spoken. Spoken that word of the gospel. I am for you. Come to me. And I will rescue you. I will draw you out. I will bring you home. Let's pray. Our Father God, there's much in our lives that confuses us, much in our world at the moment that confuses us. Uh, we know uh, that you don't always come quickly uh, to relieve our suffering. Uh, we think of brothers and sisters around the world meeting even in secret today, uh, in fear of their lives. Think of those who have lost friends and family to prison, even death because they confess Christ. We do pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we praise you that you have come and entered our suffering and that you did so in order to remove us from it one day, to draw us out and take us safely home. This week coming, we pray, therefore, that you would lift our eyes to know that Christ has conquered. Would we know his love, pour your spirit on us and comfort us. For we ask in his name. Amen.